And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets. You know, most commentators group these together in a sermon. But I think we unwittingly miss something amazing if we simply gloss over a few of these names. I mean, when was the last time you learned about Gideon? 20 years ago, Sunday school? I mean, we see just his name mentioned here, but in a moment we're going to turn back to uh, to Judges chapter 6, and the author of the book of Judges gives him 100 verses. I just don't think we can skip over Gideon here. I don't think we can, we can just say, well, I know that story. It's just fine. I mean, there's a lot here. In fact, let your eyes fall down to verse 33, and let's see how many of these characteristics apply even just to Gideon, who by faith, what? Conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness. Look at verse 34. Escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. At least six of those characteristics would apply directly to this fellow named Gideon. And let's remember, Gideon was, well, he was no warrior. I mean, his draft card would have been 4F. He was at the bottom of the list. He was fearful, and he was flawed. And yet it is for this reason that I believe this first century church of converted Jews might identify with him even more than they would have with Abraham or David or Jacob. And there's something about Gideon Something about a fella who is an average Joe, frankly, who's fearful. He's scared. I mean, that is the common theme throughout these 100 verses. He is a fearful fella. And what do we know about this Hebrew church? They're afraid. They're scared. They know persecution is probably going to get worse, and so they are backing away. They're drifting. And so I want to look at Gideon this morning, and we're just going to, we're going to move at whatever pace that, uh, that Scriptures take us. And I think a hundred verse signals, slow down, take it easy. We see a lot of God's grace in this narrative. We see God's power to calm hearts. We see God as the one who brings victory, even with the smallest of armies and the weakest and flawed type of men. And in every case, he gets all the glory. Would you pray with me and we'll look at this together? Gracious Father, we come before you as a body of believers and we are eager to hear from your authoritative inspired word. We have sang together this morning, we've prayed together, we've fellowshiped together, and we have shared the ordinance of the Lord's table together. We are fessed up and ready to hear what you have for us. 
And yet, Lord, as we approach this, we have to admit that even though we are not undergoing persecution right now, we are probably far more like Gideon than we are a David or an Abraham. We are fearful. We are flawed. We are the least of all people. And we are the ones who are most in need. And yet, it is because of our estate that You shine so brightly through us. It is because of our neediness and our desperate dependence that Your glory is magnified through the weakest of all things. And so, Lord, I pray that this narrative this morning, that as we seek to understand Gideon's faith, the faith that You gave him, though undeserving, Though disobedient, the faith that you gave him and you drew him to yourself and used him mightily for your kingdom advancement and not his own, may we be edified by this this morning. May we be encouraged. May you strengthen our bones to do the work of ministry. And may we not see things as man sees things. May we not see numbers as small May we not see the overwhelming culture that seems stronger than, uh, than our faith. May we see our great God. May we see our Lord Jesus Christ lifted high. And may we see this as an opportunity for you to magnify yourself through your church, your called out body of believers, your redeemed rebels. So may you be magnified this morning. May we lift you high. And in that process, may we be encouraged. May we cast aside the way the the world seeks to, to strengthen us. Oh, don't be afraid because you're good, you're strong, you're smart. No, may we hear how the Bible does it. You're not strong, you're weak. You're not smart. It is God. He is the one. He is the one that gives us the ability to do His bidding. He is the one that gives us the confidence because He is the victor. Encourage us with Yourself this morning, Lord. And may our Lord Jesus Christ be magnified in all that we say and do. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we've got five points this morning. So I hope you uh, brought a lot of paper write a lot of notes. We're going to go quickly, but we're going to look at this very unorthodox military campaign together. I'll give them to you, and then I will do my best to remember to repeat them as we go through. Number one, correction. Write down the word correction is our first point. Number two, call of duty. Call of duty. Number three, cleaning house. Cleaning house. Four, doubting and dependence. Doubting and dependence. And then fifthly, doing things God's way. Let's set the stage. Take your Bibles and turn with me back to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Gideon's going to get chapter 6, 7, and 8. I'm going to cover about a chapter and a half this morning. 
Judges chapter 6. Start off in verse 1. With this topic of correction, I want to show us the state that Israel is in, how they got there, and how they cry out to the Lord. And He is going to discipline them because He is a loving Father. Starting in verse 1, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because Midian, the sons of Israel, made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. We might say that the Israelites, after the conquest, started going through a cycle of being Canaanized. And that's what happened here. It says the Lord gave them over. Now that's interesting because in the last few chapters of the book of Judges, we see that the Lord sold them into the hands of the enemy. And He sold them again and again. Now He just says He gave them. It's like, you take them. I'm done with them. I've done all this for them. I cared for them 40 years in the wilderness. I took them through seven years of conquest. I gave them a land flowing with milk and honey, and they did exactly what they weren't supposed to do when we learned in Deuteronomy this morning. They rejected God, and they embraced their neighbors, the Canaanites. And so God just hands them over. And it says that the Midianite hand was so oppressive that it drove the Israelites to crawl into holes in the rocks, like animals trying to hide from predators. Sin does that to you, doesn't it? Sin drives you to hide. It drives you away from the presence of the Lord. And the question I have as I look at this is, who is this Midian? Who are these Midianites? Who are these nomads from the Gulf of Aqaba? Well, it helps to go back a little bit. If you'll remember a few weeks ago, we saw that Abraham, after his princess Sarah died, remarried, and he remarried a gal named Keturah. And they had a child whose name was Midian. We also see the Midianite traders were the ones who providentially brought Joseph into Egypt when he was sold by his brothers. We also see it, fast forward 400 years, when Moses leaves from the presence of the Pharaoh, that he goes into the land of Midian, and he meets a young gal whose father is the priest of Midian. And then if you know about Numbers 31, it talks about how Israel destroyed these nomadic desert people. And uh, they had a great victory over them. So now fast forward 200 years after that last account, and you've got people who've been nursing a grudge. They've built back up again, and they're angry. They're distant cousins of the Israelites, but it's kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys. They hate each other, and it's time for revenge. Look at verse 3. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. Where's Gaza? That's Gaza Strip. That's what Hamas runs today. So it's a long distance. 
and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. So these Midianites would join up with other cousins, descendants of Esau, and other desert nomadic peoples, and they would come and they would raid the children of Israel. They weren't peaceful uh, Bedouin uh, sheep herders. They were marauders. They were pirates. They would come in after Israel had planted crops and they would seek to just destroy and raid. They weren't there just to steal. They were there for revenge. They wanted to destroy. Verse 5, For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. And they came into the land to devastate it. What do locusts do? They come in and they eat and destroy everything in their path. They leave nothing. And that's the way these Midianites were, along with the Amalekites. Which, by the way, the Amalekites, we'll learn later, they were also under the ban. This is why the first king of Israel, Saul, lost his throne. Because he did not destroy the Amalekites like he was supposed to. Another sermon for another day. But these are... If you're a Jew reading this, especially in the first century, you're reading about Gideon and this Old Testament narrative, and someone says, Amalekites or Midianites. You know what you think of? Thugs. Desert marauding thugs. You know, guys with black, you know, turbans, swords on camels. And you've got to realize what camels were like to the Israelites. Camels were the ancient Near Eastern long-range bombers, okay? Camels, and it says they're innumerable here, could go 100 miles in one day. So you think about it. You were at the mercy of hundreds, even thousands of camels racing in. They could carry a rider and 400 pounds. They could go a week without drinking water. I've been to the Middle East I was amazed when we, we pulled into this area and I see, you know, Rolls, Rolls Royces and Mercedes. And I look over and there's camels and there's tents. And I asked the fellow I was with, what's, what's this here? And he goes, oh, those camels you see are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. They race them. I said, they race camels? R really? They're fast. They're fast. So these are long-range bombers with people with an axe to grind. Verse 6, so Israel was brought, what does your version say? Very low. Very low because of Midian. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Literally, they were impoverished. Their farms, their ranches had been destroyed. Their livestock had been killed. They were living in holes in the rocks. Deuteronomy 28.43 says, The alien who is among you shall rise above you higher and higher, but you will go down lower and lower. And that's what sin does. What was their sin? Besides becoming Canaanized, besides worshiping the Baals, which is all horrible, besides playing the harlot with the local neighbors... Their sin was they didn't finish conquering the land. 
God says, simply walk the land in every place where the sole of your foot treads, I will give you. I will fight your battles. Do not fear, for I will be with you. And what happens? They kind of got their territory, and they looked around, and they said, seven years of conquest? Man, I'm tired. I'm going to settle down. You know, I, I don't particularly like, you know, the, the pagan Canaanites that are, you know, three or four football fields away, but I'll just kind of wave to them. They stay out of my place. I'll stay out of their place. We'll be fine. Until their kids start to play together, right? Until your daughter thinks one of their sons is cute. And you got a problem, right? Parents, can I get an amen there? Yeah. It's always those Canaanite boys, right? Let's look at our second point. Call of duty. Verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. So, terrible situation. They're under discipline. Enter Gideon. Now, this reminds me of kind of a a parody of the old Superman show. You guys probably don't remember, but you know how it would open with, our story opens with Clark Kent, a mild-mannered reporter of a daily metropolitan newspaper who is typing out obituaries on his manual typewriter, right? But secretly, he's a valiant warrior, right? Not so much with Gideon. He is the first part. He is a mild-mannered farmer, Farmer, but what's he doing here? It says he's beating out wheat where? In a wine press. Now, I don't own a farm, I'm not a winemaker, but I'm pretty sure that a wine press is for what? Wine. Okay? And I don't know much, but I do remember because I studied the book of Ruth that when it's harvest time and you are taking that wheat, wheat, and bringing it in from the harvest, it's with a lot of fanfare. There's a lot of celebration. It's done on a hilltop where there's lots of wind. It's cast into the air where the chaff is blown away. There's parties. There's... This is not it. This is not it. Do you know what our hero is doing here? He's hiding. He's hiding. Wine presses were cut out of the rock. They were kind of you know, three-sided in a mountain. He's hiding. He's hoping for a little wind to come by to take away this chaff. He's, he's lifting it up and throwing a little bit up and making sure the Midianites aren't around. He's scared. Now watch what happens in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, what? Oh, valiant warrior. You know, Jews have a sense of humor, no question about it. But God is serious here. Because God sees, not as man sees. The Lord is with you, oh, valiant warrior. Who? Me? Who, me? Are you talking to me? Now, Gideon doesn't realize that this is God yet. He just thinks it's a traveler. Why would you say that to me? I, I'm hiding. 
Verse 13, and Gideon does or says really what's in his heart. Well, sir, you say the Lord is with me. The Lord, you mean the same Lord? Verse 13, the Lord that has brought us up from Egypt but has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. That Lord? Yeah. And he complains about him. What he's really doing is diverting attention from the call. Because when they're naming him, O valiant warrior, what is Gideon being called to do? To fight. So he diverts attention away. Verse 14, the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And Gideon realizes what he's just said. And Gideon realizes who this is. But he's still fearful. So he starts off by responding with, Who me? And then he goes to, Why me? And God responds with, Because of me. You can do this. And right about now, this Hebrew church in the first century, no, I would say right about now, Metro Bible, we find ourselves in Gideon's shoes. Have I not sent you? You think about it. Before Christ died, he gave the great commission. Go and make disciples. As he has saved each one of us, he has saved us and left us here for a purpose. And we are all soldiers in the captain of our salvation's army. And we are advancing his kingdom one soul at a time. And yet, how many times have we heard people say, how many times have we been guilty of saying, oh, oh yeah, I know, but uh, who am I? Why me? I'm not good at this. Evangelism is not my gift. I don't know how to disciple. I've never been discipled. I don't, I don't like to get in someone's kitchen. Excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse. Why me? Why me? Why me? And God says, because of me. Christ says, because of me. How does he end the Great Commission? And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. God never calls us to do something for which he does not equip us to be able to do it. Amen? So think about it is the height of an insult to tell God, thanks but no thanks. Think about right now, just pause, think about your favorite excuse for not witnessing to the person in your circle of influence that needs it the most. Think about that excuse. Is it, is it, well, there's not an appropriate time, or I'm so busy, I don't want to lose a friend? They're insults to God, because He's not calling us to do something without equipping us to do it. Gideon is the perfect example of that. He's spineless, he's weak, he's fearful, and yet God calls him a valiant warrior. And He says, you can do this because of me. Verse 16, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. 
By the way, just a side note here, think about this Hebrew church wanting to go back to the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. This sounds a lot like Moses here, doesn't it? When God called him. I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Oh, I don't know. Um, I, 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 I'm slow of speech. You remember that? <laughs> and God's thinking, wait, wait. The, the, the same boy that I sovereignly ordained to grow up in Pharaoh's household, who was at the very least trilingual, who understood court etiquette, who was, as Stephen said, a man of power and words and deeds. Who has created man's mouth? You can do this. Why me? Because of me, God says. And I will be your sword, literally. And you shall defeat as one man. And it's like Gideon drops his shoulders and goes, Oh, okay. Okay, who me didn't work? Why me didn't work? Give me a sign. Jews ask for signs, right? There's always the give me a sign card I can pull out, right? And so he says, don't go anywhere. And Gideon prepares this meal, a goat and some bread, and brings it to the visitor. The angel tells him to set it on the rock and back away. And that angel takes his staff and touches it, and it's consumed with fire. And then he disappears. And Gideon knows this was God. He knows so much that it is God that he is fearful of dying. You see, Jews understood, they had, a, they had a healthy understanding of total depravity. That should they encounter God himself, that they would die. Because they are sinful in the presence of a perfect God. Isaiah said it this way, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Jacob said, I have, I have seen the Lord and I have not died. And look what the Lord does. It's like, it's like a voice comes out. He's fearful of dying. And he says in verse 23, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. I tell you what, if, if, if you're a Hebrew reading this letter, and it is recalling the story of Gideon, which you know well from those days of growing up in the synagogue, you realize how compassionate God is to a fearful saint. You realize that God goes above and beyond to comfort a fearful farmer and call him a valiant warrior. To appear to him and call him and encourage him and then say, do not fear, you will not die. Peace to you. Verse 24, Gideon built an altar there and named it, The Lord is Peace. Yahweh Shalom. Yahweh Shalom. That's the gospel right there, isn't it? You think about it. Yahweh Shalom is the gospel. That we now have been in the presence of God and have not died. He is our peace. How is He our peace? Well, it would come through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we celebrated at the Lord's table. That we, Romans 5.1, have peace with God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God moves towards His rebellious creation. 
And He not only sets the terms of peace, He fulfills it. Yahweh Shalom. Refuge is found in Him. We who are far away have been brought near. And I tell you, you know, I was thinking, we sang a mighty fortress this morning. I remember when I taught this 13, 14 years ago, this was in my notes. A mighty fortress is our God. That's what Gideon has. God is not only our peace, He is our bulwark in times of trouble. Peace doesn't come through a fear of man, but through fear of God. And that's what Gideon has now. And so he's been called to duty. And now he's commissioned. But, but where does that commissioning start? You know, I imagine he, he's, he's looking at his marching orders and he's like, okay, let's see, our campaign against Midian is going to start here to the north. And we're going to get an army here and approach from this side. Is that what God tells him to do? Well, look with me at our third point, cleaning house. That very same night, the Lord appears to him in a dream, verse 25, and the Lord says to him, go and battle Midian with a great army. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. It says, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your daddy, and cut down the Asheroth that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner. And take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the, second, with the wood of the Asheroth, which you shall cut down. Let me translate from the Hebrew here. God says, before you get to play soldier and go out and save the world, you need to first learn to use a BB gun at home. He's got to clean his own house. It's the clean hands doctrine. You can't go out and battle the world's evil until you handle the evil in your own house. What's in his daddy's backyard? A shrine, an altar to Baal. And even more than that, it's described as a fortress. So this thing is large, it costs a lot of money, and all the townspeople come and worship there. And Gideon is about to go fight Midian, an idolatrous people, but he can't do it until he cleans house first. It's interesting how God deals with this principle, isn't it? Of course, He does with, with elders as well. You can't, you can't manage the household of God unless your, your own house is under control. You can't go fight evil people if you got evil in the camp. We learned about Jericho last week, but what happened with the battle right after Jericho? Kiddos, you remember the battle right after Jericho? It's called I. Spelled A-I, the battle of I. And they went into it, but there was sin in the camp. You see, there was a guy named Achan who took something under the ban. They weren't supposed to take anything from Jericho. And he took two things. He took a very nice sport coat, and he took a gold bar, and he hid it in his tent, under, under the floor of his tent. And as a result, because there was sin in the camp and they were going to fight evil, God had them lose. I mean, lose badly like our own Texas Rangers regularly lose, okay? Cut that out of the tape. But they had, there was sin in the camp. Achan did this. I remember my, my pastor told me to remember it this way. Achan was mistaken. Big mistake. 
And what happened? They lost. They lost royally. Gideon, before you're going to go win, have victory over the Midianites, you've got to kill the idolatry in your own house. But even more than that, he's got to be faithful in the little things before he can be faithful in the bigger things. And we are guilty of this as Christians, right? You know, I want to go on the, uh, you know, the, the short-term mission trip overseas and witness to lots of pagans when I haven't witnessed to anyone on my street ever. I like the way one guy used to say, don't get on and try to bench 300 pounds if you can't push the bar. Gideon's got to push the bar here a little bit, and he's got to do that, which is sometimes, can we be honest, the most difficult, because it's with your family. Who owns this altar? Dad does. Gideon is the runt of the litter. The people in the town like this. And so God says, Gideon, welcome to Operation Clean House. You get your Hebrew tractor, a big bull, and I want you to go take, I want you to back him up to this altar, and I want you to just destroy it, pull it down. And I want you to do it, and then I want you to cut down the Asheroth next to it, which is like this totem pole, And I want you to build a new altar, and I want you to use the wood of the former pagan monument to be a fire, and I want you to sacrifice one of those bulls on the altar. By the way, that big bull which he's going to sacrifice was probably being raised to be sacrificed to Baal. This is daddy's stronghold. Gideon's already built a private altar. Now it's time to go public with his faith. Look at verse 27. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants. He can't be too far from the wrong side of the tracks with ten servants, right? And as the Lord spoke to him, he did it at night because he was too afraid to do it by day. Now, it's easy to be critical of Gideon here. Um, But I think we have to remember this is hard. And how many of us wouldn't have done it at all? And so I'm going, to, I'm going to give him credit, even though he's not doing it in the daytime. And let's see how his cultural sensitivity goes over. Verse 29. People of the town scream, Who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. And the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asheroth, which is beside it. They're willing to kill him over this. But Joash, his dad, contended for him. Look what he says in verse 31. He stood against them. Quote, will you contend for Baal? And will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. He turns the tables. Rather than focusing on who did this, if this is really Baal's altar, and if he's really a god, let's see him show up and defend his honor. Because if you do it, you'll be dead by morning. What other prophet does this remind us of? 
Elijah, remember? Same God he went against. The Baals built the two altars. Let's see who, who uh, consumes it with fire. And all the prophets of Baal are walking around and yelling and, yelling and cutting themselves and everything else. And he's, he mocks them. He says, call out with a loud voice. For if Baal is a god, either he's occupied or he's gone aside on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Joash, Gideon's father, realizes that what Gideon has done is right. He seeks to stand in the gap for his son. And he renames his son Jerubal. Let Baal contend. Now, there's one interesting side note here about Joash, his father. It's a very biblical name, but he's been a very unbiblical father and servant of God. Joash means Yahweh is strong. And you're meant to get this if you're a Jew. Joash is growing into his name. Gideon is being renamed. What happens when we come to Christ? What happens when we start to live for him? We take on a new name. We are Christians. We are Christ ones. We are servant of the King of Kings and we do his bidding. And, and I'm sure Gideon's still thinking, you know, am I prepared for this? No. Let me ask us, are we prepared for this? No. But biblically, the answer we, we have to get accustomed to is yes. Because it's not in our strength that we contend. It's in God's strength. And it starts with being faithful at home. Look at our fourth point, doubting and dependence. Verse 33, then all of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abaziarites were called together to follow him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Literally, the Spirit of the Lord clothed him. Now, under the Old Covenant, believers were not uh, continually sealed or indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But the Spirit of the Lord would come upon them for particular tasks, for duties. Now, there's something interesting here. Look who follows him. These are the same guys who wanted to kill him. And you're, you're meant to get the sense here that the Spirit who calls us, enables us, and people recognize that. There's a story of a group, group of uh, British pastors who wanted to bring old D.L. Moody over for a crusade, a revival. And one guy kicked back pretty hard and said, Why must it be Moody? Does Moody have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And one of the pastors kind of leaned over and said, no, but it's evident that the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Moody. And that's what you're meant to see with Gideon. Gideon's not super spiritual. Gideon's being used by God. But Gideon, being called by God, empowered by the Spirit, will, in God's strength, be able to do his work. And so, side note here again, let me ask you a question. What's different between you and Gideon? You're a new covenant believer. You are sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. From the time of your conversion, when you repented and believed in God, regenerated you, you were sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the power of God within you to do His directive will in Scripture. 
There's only one reason we're not doing it, and it's none of our excuses. It's because we quench the Holy Spirit. We have all of the Holy Spirit we ever need now to do the work that He has called us to. Well, Gideon, clothed with the the Holy Spirit, in verse 35, sends out the clarion call to the rest of his tribe and also those to the north and others who have been abused by the Midianites, and he ends up with an army, watch this, of 32,000 foot soldiers. Now, I'd be feeling pretty good right now if I was Gideon. 32,000 foot soldiers. We can do this thing. God, you and me and 32,000 foot soldiers. Of course, you know what's going to happen. But even with that, the Midianites still have a force, we know from chapter 8, of 135,000. It's still one to four odds, four to one odds. It's, It's difficult. Plus, remember, they have camels. Look at verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken. Now, how many times have you heard the phrase, you just need to put out the fleece to know what the will of God is? I'd ask how many times you've said it, but it'd be a little embarrassing to raise your hand right now. Okay? But this is common vernacular in Christendom, right? If you don't know what to do, you, don't, you want to know what, the, what God's will is, you just need to put out the fleece. Okay, two words, S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. Stop it. Christians don't do this. This is not a determinant of God's will. This is Gideon doubting God's will. This is Gideon not trusting God. Gideon has been told what to do. We have even more than that. We have been told by His Word what to do. We don't need to seek out some sort of mystical, you know, does God mean this? Is He want me to go this direction, that direction? There's only two kinds of will. His directive will and His decretive will. This is worth writing down, okay? Directive will and decretive will. His decretive will is that which He has decreed which none of us can know. I'm going to leave here today and get hit by a bus. I can't know that. There's no way to know that. I don't have to worry about that, okay? His directive will is given to us in God's Word. We have all that we need for life and godliness. Scripture is sufficient, the Apostle Peter tells us. It doesn't talk about everything, every aspect in detail, but it talks about everything principally. So, so this fleece business, it, it, you're meant to look at it and say, yeah, Gideon's falling back into it. He's being gripped by fear. He is a reluctant warrior at this point. If he could section eight out of the military, he would do it, okay? He's testing God. And yet, what you're meant to see here is God is patient with him, gentle with him, long-suffering and kind with him. And you know the story. He not only gets his answer, but then he's like, okay, now let's reverse it. And God answers him as well. But he knows he is wrong because he says, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Nevertheless, he gets his sign, his doubt, solved. 
And it's as if he says, okay, we're in chapter 7. Okay, Lord, we are ready to go. Your spirit is with me. I've got two clear signs. I've got a massive army. Let's go. And God says, whoa, big fella, settle down. We're actually not ready to go yet. Chapter 7, verse 2. The people who are with you are what? Too many. Too many. Because they would become boastful, saying, my power, my own power has delivered me. Now, I imagine Gideon ready for battle, getting this word from the Lord, calling his major over. Major comes over. Yes, General Gideon. What are my orders? Well, you know, how, how are things going, Major? Oh, the men are ready. The men are hungry. They're equipped. We are ready to get those dadgum Midianites. Um, Gideon says, yeah, um, I need you to go ask the men if they're scared. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> yeah, I need you to go ask them if they're scared, and if so, you need to let them go home. You're kidding me, right, Gideon? We just got 32,000 of these guys here. Why would I ask that question? Those of you who are in the military, we just had Veterans Day. Have you ever been asked by your commanding officer if you are scared? And then saying, hey, why don't you go take you know, a little R&R? &R? Pretty sure it doesn't work that way, okay? You know how many people were scared? 22,000 crawled back into their tents. 22,000. And I know Gideon's going, oh man, this hurts. This, this is tough. Uh, but hey, we still have 10,000. We still have 10,000. So Major, give the orders. And then he hears, Gideon. Yes, Lord. People are still too many. Verse 4. Ah, too many. I knew I shouldn't have pushed this whole fleece thing. Verse 5, he tells him what to do. He says, I want you to take the men down to the water. I want you to watch how they drink. You shall separate everyone. Verse 5, who laps the water with the tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. That picture is there. Picture of a guy standing up, kneeling down, like the, the tongue of a dog. Water this way. He's watching around. The other guys are on their knees, closer to the water, drinking. Now, you got two sides of the coin here. You got commentators who spend way too much time putting you know, all the different meaning into this, and you got others who say it doesn't mean anything. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I don't think this has to do with the ability of the men at all. I just I think it simply has to do with their willingness. Those who are more alert appear to be more willing. And so if if the first one was was an issue of, of courage. Go home if you're afraid. This one's more of an issue of readiness. And of course, 9,700 lap, I mean, uh, get down on their knees. And I, and I know Gideon's thinking, okay, all right, we're good. We can lose 300 men. We still got 9,700. This is okay. This is okay. Gideon, yes, Lord, send the 9,700 home. What? Keep the 300 that lapped like a dog. And you can just imagine Gideon going into his Yiddish rant. 
just like Ricky Ricardo used to do when in Spanish, he'd get upset, just, no, 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 How am I supposed to do this? There's no way. Write down this word, these words, desperate dependence. God is taking him to the end of his rope. Desperate dependence. Now, this is so interesting because there's a contrast here. Whereas the creature, Gideon, tests the creator in doubt, the creator tests the creature in love. I would say even comforts him in love. He is testing him, but he's also continually comforting him. Look at verse 10. If you are afraid to go down, go with Pura your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened so that you may go down against the camp. The battle is yours, Gideon, but you know what? If you're afraid, I'm going to encourage you with something. I want you to sneak into the camp tonight with your servant. Now remember how many thousands and thousands, 135,000, You're supposed to sneak into the middle of camp and listen to a couple of privates talking? Well, that's what he does. Verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell down. And turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. Verse 14, his friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. There's like just... The first time Judges is being read, you can imagine the whole congregation going, Hoorah! Hoorah! They haven't even had the battle yet. Hoorah! Does God care for his fearful saints and yet he doesn't give them a pass about going into battle? Does God strip them of everything that they might count on as their own strength so that they will be desperately dependent upon him and yet comfort them as they go into battle? Do you think this might be helpful to this first century church that is scared to death of both Nero and their own family and their friends and being persecuted and hearing about someone who's lost their life and they have already lost their property? And God uses a buffoon like Gideon. I would say that my hands would be strengthened. That if I had been one of those guys who was forsaking the assembly together, I would be First one there at church on Sunday. I would be ready to serve. This would strengthen my faith because I identify with Gideon. I am weak. I am fearful. That sarcasm that came out of his heart, oh, God, you mean the one who who brought us into the land, brought us out out of Egypt, and now he sold us in the hand of Midian? That's me. Can I get an amen there? Those kind of thoughts come to my mind. And yet God is overwhelmingly encouraging time after time again. You got five minutes to finish this story out? I'm wearing a suit today, so my Baptist pastor going long will be okay. Okay? Number five, doing things God's way. 
Verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed low in worship. Warren Wearsby said it well. He says, before we can be successful warriors, we must first become sincere worshipers. And what we see here is the transformation of a weak farmer who is scared in hiding to a valiant warrior who trusts in the strength of the Lord. Verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. So as they're going through, ready to check out their their AR-15s and their swords, uh, they're asked, uh, pick your pitcher and pick your trumpet. Really? Have you seen who we're about to fight? And yet, this is how God plans it. Let's not overlook the trumpet. This is a shofar. Remember from Jericho last week? That's what they blew. The shofar had a, had a battle sound to it. It was loud. And you can imagine being awakened by 300 of these in the dead of night with no noise pollution would scare anyone. And if you've ever dropped a, a, a ceramic bowl onto a tile floor... It's loud, it'll wake the neighbors. And then imagine the whole ridge around you, as far as you can see encircled you, is lit with large torches. The deception is real. You've been surprised by a night attack with overwhelming forces. If you're going to attack at night, you better be confident. If I was a Midianite, I would be scared to death. You know, in the days leading up, the days and the months leading up to D-Day, the Third Reich kept trying to determine where General Patton was. And then they finally found him. He, and I believe it was his Fifth Army, was camped at Calais, which is right, you know, uh, on the, up north from the English Channel. They were watching him the whole time, and his army, and all his tanks that were there. What Hitler and the Panzer didn't realize is that all those tanks were cardboard. And there wasn't an army there. It was deception. And the Lord uses this here as a springboard to do the work he's going to do. Verse 21, after smashing it, blowing the trumpets, each stood in his place around the camp and the army ran crying out, and fled. We find out that the Lord sovereignly orchestrates for them to run each other through, and the army attacks itself. Napoleon said it well, never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. And they watch, literally they watch the Lord fight their battle. And then they have the guts, by God's grace, to then pursue them and overtake them. Look at verse 25, and we'll finish with this. They captured the two leaders, uh, leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zaib, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zaib where? The wine press. You think God doesn't have a sense of humor? Killed him at the wine press. Faith fears less when it depends upon God more. 
that little church of Jewish Christians who had become fearful was now being told by this preacher who loves them dearly in chapter 11. You need the kind of faith that trades in its fear for courage in the Lord's strength, not your own. And the more you are desperately dependent upon God, the less you have, down to even 300 men and no swords, the less you have, the more God will work. The key to your fear is a faith that trusts God brings the victory. Amen? Father, I pray that we would have that kind of desperate dependence, that kind of faith that says, Lord, what do I have? I have nothing to bring to the table. Not the one that protests, why me? But Lord, use me, and, and there's not a lot of me, but I trust that you will be glorified even more with these weak hands. Father, may we honor your Son by simply following him and letting him win the battles for us. In Jesus' name, amen.